0: Hey, guys, this is Emmett. Welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, I am here with one of my favorite writers in the public realm. But Right now, I think it's rare to find people who are willing to be intellectually both flexible and honest. And I think that Oliver Traldi, today's guest, achieves that. So welcome, Oliver. How are you?
1: I'm good. And thank you so much for your kind words. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. So you teach at University of Notre Dame. That's in South Bend, right? Indiana. Yeah,
1: South Bend, Indiana. I've lived here for a little over three years now. I'm finishing up my PhD. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, it's the first time I've lived in the Midwest. I lived on the East Coast for my entire life before this. So a little Mm -hmm. bit of a change.
0: Yeah, I'll bet. So... I wanted to have a broad and far-reaching conversation today, but one of the things that I wanted to touch on is, Oliver, why is everyone so mad at you all of the time?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I have a, I, I wonder this myself, because there are definitely, you know, there are, I, I do take, I take some positions that are heterodox within my field of philosophy or that are at least contrary to the positions that a lot of other people take publicly. I'm anti-woke, as they say it, kind of in a broad sense. And I think more than a lot of other people, I kind of try to take other people's arguments head on. So I do that in my negative book reviews. And in some of my public pieces, I just say, you know, I'm a bit of a critic. I'm a bit of a, you know, destructive personality intellectually. And so a lot of my writing is to say, here's an argument somebody else gave. It doesn't work. You know, it's a Mm -hmm. bad argument. Rather than advancing my own, and I think that leads to to some people being unhappy with me. I think that there's there can be a snowballing effect where you know, you get into a kind of argument with one person, but they have friends who kind of circle the wagons a little bit, and they tell their friends that that you're not a very good guy. And I think that's happened to me. And you know, every few months I do kind of just blow up at somebody and call them and uh, human, all too human, Oliver. <laughs> yeah. So that, that, you know, I think that those are the main things. but all in all, you know, I think, I think the question of who people get mad at and why is in a way is a, a difficult one. So think about like centrists in the lo- online discourse versus like people on the far right. So, you know, your average online leftist might be, might think that like the, an alt writer is evil. Mm -hmm. They're usually not like upset with the alt-righters. They're usually not angry by the alt-righters. And they're usually not kind of like necessarily that motivated by the existence of the alt-righters. I'm talking about very online people. Often they're more motivated by like a Jonathan Chait or a Jesse Singal kind of person. Maybe a Connor Friedersdorf. People who are uh, have some left-wing sympathies, but some right-wing sympathies. Or are left-wing economically, but anti-woke or a kind of libertarian or something like that. And those are the people who seem to make others the angriest, the people who agree with them about some things but disagree with them about others. And and that's who people seem to actually be motivated to spend time attacking. I've never quite understood this. It always seemed to me that you should be most motivated to attack the people who agree with you about the least. But I can't say that I'm, you know, innocent of this phenomenon either.
0: Right. I mean, it's interesting to talk about this in terms of like thinking publicly, right? Mm -hmm. I think that there is this like assumption that part of generating work online, especially like commentary or whatever is about uh, signaling in group and out group stuff. Right. Like you're picking a side every time you publish. Mm -hmm. Right. I think there are like incentives built into social media that encourage that, but it seems to be just so pervasively true now that it's it seems like there's no free play of intellectual thought uh-huh. anymore. Is that has that been your experience in
1: yeah, generating that's, work? That's completely my experience. And I definitely at the beginning of my writing career, um Career, you know, in scare yeah, work, yeah, you know.
0: Yeah. I mean, every, everybody is basically a Scarecrow. Yeah, growth.
1: everybody who's done freelance writing, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm often accused of, oh, Oliver's doing this anti woke stuff as a grift or to, to make money mm. or something. And anybody who's done freelance writing knows exactly how little money what I, a, I a shitty grift. <laughs> yeah, it's the, wor- the worst grift in history. But You know, near the beginning of my career, this is about five years, I had been basically just posting my thoughts on Facebook, kind of generally anti-woke thoughts that, you know, maybe the Clinton campaign, you know, this is before the election, maybe the Clinton campaign was responding to the wrong incentives from within the left and things like that. Maybe people didn't understand Trump's appeal or were kind of trying to pretend that they didn't understand Trump's appeal Mm -hmm. and things like that. And this was just stuff that I wrote on Facebook for my friends. You know, I was a kind of little forum among people I used to know. And uh, people, old friends we kind of argue with each other about it on my Facebook wall. And I got an email from an old friend who was some kind of editor at, at the Boston Review, which is a left-wing, maybe just kind of a socialist magazine. I don't know exactly how you classify it even now, but a leftist magazine. And he said, you know, I think your perspective is somebody who, you know, agrees with a lot of left-wing things, but it's kind of against, we didn't really call it wokeness or, you know, against...
0: Whatever he that probably was said something like the time. some of
1: these trends, whatever the word we used for this stuff was back then. But, it's funny
0: how we can't even remember.
1: Yeah, we can't even remember the terms and we can't even remember the controversies. There's a new controversy every week. We're never going to mm-hmm. be able to remember all of them. And so he said, you know, it would be cool to get your perspective in the Boston Review. And this is when, you know, the the kind of anti-woke pro-free speech left was not well populated at this point, right? Like Angela mm-hmm. Nagel hadn't written her book yet. Freddie DeBoer was still kind of on his original blog or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was many iterations of Freddie de ago. Not many people had heard of Adolf Reed, things like that. Right. And uh, I said, sure. I would, you know, at this point I had, you know, I had been, I'd had mental health issues. I had moved back home with my parents and I was doing nothing. I said, wow, somebody wants to yeah, put my writing in a magazine. That seemed amazing. So I said, sure. I'll, I'll I'd be happy to write for the Boston review. And um, then Trump won. <laughs> uh, and their focus shifted, right? Mm-hmm. The focus of many political publications shifted. And I thought, oh, well. so, but I still, I really like this idea of doing some writing and trying to put my writing in magazines and things like that. And so I said, here's another place that I've seen that publishes some of this pro-free speech stuff, this magazine called Quillette out of Australia. And to me at the time, it was kind of just like, well, I couldn't write in the one magazine, so I'll just write in another magazine. Yeah. Um, that was my level of under, like, it seems so straightforward to me. Right. If you want to write and get your writing out there, one magazine won't publish it, so you just put it in another. You magazine.
0: go to you go to the people who will publish your ideas. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. And it didn't. I didn't realize until maybe late 2017, early 2018, that I had kind of like publishing in one place makes it really hard to publish in another place. Right. Yeah. They don't because tell you of that. this effect that that you were talking about the kind of in group signaling and the kind of travel aspects of it. And I often get you know I don't and I don't know I don't know to what extent I'll be able to escape this? I have, you know, mutuals on Twitter, and I get emails from people who write for Vox, The Atlantic, mm-hmm. you know, The Washington Post, The New York Times. But I don't know if it's not clear to me that it, you know it's possible that it's just I'm toxic from having written at some of these other places mm-hmm. that I've kind of uh, written myself into a corner. You know, I I have friends who kind of share my views on almost everything, but who say. You know, I would never write for one of those places just because once you're kind of in, you can't quite get out. And that's something that I didn't really understand about this world of writing, right? That just by putting your name somewhere, just by talking to certain people, that you have kind of hidden motivations, that you have, you know, nefarious motivations, things like. So, yeah, I definitely think, you know, that's a big, that's a big part of it. You're signaling, even if you don't realize that you're signaling, because, you know, even though I didn't realize I was signaling something by writing at Colette, I was signaling that. I wasn't one of the people who knew that I would be signaling something, right? So you can't help—you can't help but signaling. You're always signaling something to the world, and uh, you know I have to deal with—not that I have any problem with Colette. I was happy to have written for Quillette and Ario and Arc Digital and these kind of, mm-hmm. you know, to whatever extent, you know, tablet to these different extent anti-work places. But it's also something that I have to deal with the fact that I've, you know, I now have a certain kind of public profile and a certain kind of reputation.
0: Yeah. Well. So, this brings me to another question, right, because it seems to me that this ha- a lot of the way the platforms operate and this type of dynamic within the writing world itself seems to have changed the role of the public intellectual, in my mind, right? Mm-hmm. Like It's hard to imagine, not that I'm like a William F. Buckley guy, but that anything like Firing Line would exist. Right right now. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like, you can have Borges and Noam Chomsky come on.
1: Yeah. I do think that, you know, here's something, here's a way that I think every online writer has seen their work shared. And I think this is something that publications look for explicitly. You write something and the people who agree with it kind of skim it. They spend like two Mm -hmm. minutes skimming it. (laughs) And then they think this is now like my weapon. Mm -hmm. And I've been, I've actually, I've shared pieces this way, right? You share a piece where you say, okay, I know that my friend thinks X. Mm -hmm. Here's an article arguing against X that I think is pretty good. So I'm just going to, next time my friend is saying X, I'm going to drop it. You know, I'm just going to post it and drop it in their feed and say, well, what do you think about this? Right Mm -hmm. now they're going to have to deal with this and it's going to kind of set them back. Right. So your articles kind of become weapons in this way. And, you know, I search, I don't name search on Twitter, but I do search for my pieces. Mm -hmm. I like to keep track of how many people have shared my pieces, who has shared my pieces, things like that. And I do sometimes see people, you know, if I review a book, sometimes people will respond to the person who wrote the book being like, Hey, that's an interesting tweet you wrote, but your book was stupid. Here's a review of it. You know, and you see, you know, you see all these things. And I think in a way, like a lot of the role of the public intellectual at the moment is to kind of feature in this weapon-like way in the kind of attention economy, information economy, social media crap that we have going on. And I think that one thing that I kind of now wish I'd said that would have been a more positive spin in my recent review of Amia Srinivasan's book, Srinivasan is one of these very floaty people who's like, I'm big on, I just want to ask the questions. We don't need to come up with definitive answers, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe the questions are more important than the answers and it's good to be ambivalent. It's a good to not be sure, you know, that kind of thing. And what book is this? The right to sex. Mm. Um, So I had a review of this book in area magazine where I was very against this kind of ambivalence, but I do think that done the right way. And I wish I'd said this in the review, this ambivalence, the kind of, we need to ask the questions. The answers aren't that important, that kind of thing. That can be a kind of corrective to this, way of using argument and writing and public intellect as just a kind of, you know, another thing to share to piss off your friend and make them, you know, go on a kind of online wild goose chase to, to rebut it. Right.
0: Yeah. To refute. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to just turn into a rhetorical weapon for, a readership or for other people is a very strange experience. I mean, I've definitely written pieces that were intentionally that way, Yeah, you know, like in in fairness, I think most of the things I've written in that way, Uh (laughs) to be completely honest. And part of it's just because like you, I have this sort of maybe more destructive or critical edge and Mm -hmm. that's the way it comes out. You know, there are certain things that you just can't help about yourself as a writer. Yeah. And I think like non writers have a really hard time accepting that. Yeah. Maybe that's like a little like woo woo, but I do think that there is like, you just can't be someone you're not, right? Like, you can try to make up for some of your deficits intellectually or whatever. Like, anyone could do that. But at some point, you just have to reconcile yourself with who you are on the page.
1: Yeah. And I do think that, you know, one thing about the online debates. You know, you said the people who hate me or, you know, Mm -hmm. people who hate anybody online. You know, a lot of people involved in the hating part of being online are pretty young, right? Yeah. People in their early to mid twenties, people still in college sometimes. Mm -hmm. And this kind of process of like reckoning with yourself, figuring out what your flaws are, figuring out what you really believe, you know, figuring out if you really believe what people around you believe or what you're kind of supposed to believe. Mm -hmm. This is a process that I think kind of in like, at least in contemporary society is not something that people necessarily are going through in their 20s, right? It's something, at least for me, it happened kind of later into my 20s. And I think that for a lot of people, they're just not going to understand why you know, why there's any doubt about anything uh, and why anybody would kind of go back and forth on one of these mm-hmm. big social issues, why anybody would have... A,
0: or how you could write a review and wish you had included something maybe a little bit more generous after yeah, the fact exactly, or whatever, yeah. you know?
1: Yeah. There's a kind of a uh, confidence that people have. Yeah. Before they've gone through this process that we sometimes go through in our kind of, you know, between the beginning of adulthood and middle age, where we kind of decide, okay, I need to kind of take myself apart and put myself back together, you know? And uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a, it, yeah, it's a little bit more uh, fuzzy than I normally am too. But, you know, I often think that process is uh, having gone through that process, you know, having had mental health issues and, Mm -hmm. having kind of had to figure out who I was when nobody else was around and deciding to continue to be that person, even when other people were around that kind of thing, that was something that, you know, didn't necessarily have to happen and that I think not everybody goes through. And that really, it really informs a lot of my writing. I think it's in a way what qualifies me as a writer, what kind of makes me interesting as a writer. Obviously, you know, I'm pretty smart, but a lot of smart people, a lot of smart people just kind of end up rationalizing, you know, on one side or, or another of one of these um, big debates and don't show anything interesting going on and don't show uh, any uncertainty. So th- I think having gone through this process is a big part of what makes me interesting as a writer. And I think, yeah, a lot of people who don't write and who get angry at writers online haven't gone through that this process and don't understand uh, mm-hmm. necessarily how it can affect somebody's writing and somebody's perspective.
0: Right. Well... I'm interested about this journey that you've been on, right? One of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is because you're so prolific, because you see yourself as a writer. And I feel like there aren't a lot of forums for people to talk about how that sausage gets made, Mm -hmm. right? It's like the the writing is just something that the internet shits out and then people engage with it. But like having real conversations about writing as a craft, a practice, Right. Something that you do is severely lacking for a world that has so goddamn much of it everywhere. So I want to ask you, like, how has your relationship with yourself and your work and maybe your ideas shifted since you've embarked on this?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. You know, I've definitely had to. When I started writing and tweeting, you know, like I said, I was coming from a place where there wasn't very much going on in my life. I was, Mm -hmm. you know, I was an anonymous tweeter. An anonymous Twitter account with a few hundred followers. And I was very much a kind of, you know, what what do they say? This isn't the right right phrase, but like a Molotov cocktail thrower kind of, you -hmm. know, I I would, I, I was happy to just kind of upset the apple cart a bit. I was happy to try to tear anybody apart if I thought they were wrong. And one thing, one thing that's changed, and I don't know if this is a good change, But it's definitely the sort of change that uh, with writing being an activity that is so closely tied up with social media right now, it's definitely a change that I think a lot of people go through. As I gained more of an audience, more followers, more institutional followers as well, Mm -hmm. I had to think a lot more about who am I going to alienate with this? How am I going to, am I going to be leading, you know, say, you know, say I have somebody who's going to read this, who's only going to understand like one out of every 10 sentences or something. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that I'm not going to be leading that person astray. Right. So I want to make sure that, you know, I can't be just talking to an audience of other intellectuals anymore, because I know that isn't empirically, isn't my audience. And also just, you know, being pragmatic about future writing. I know that there are certain people I can tear into. There are certain people I don't want to tear into, including in in philosophy, you know, in my discipline, if I want to get a job. So that's just one thing that I think has changed a lot for me. And in a way, you know, I've kind of, I've become, because now I have something to lose. I'm more risk averse than I was five years ago when I started writing. And I've had to balance out, you know, I have to continue to push myself kind of consciously to say, this if you're going to be completely risk averse, there's no point in you writing at all, right? Because yeah, there's a no. ton of risk averse people out there who went to schools like you know Harvard and Yale and Princeton, and are now doing magazine writing, and just kind of espouse the views that everybody else has and mm-hmm. give the arguments that everybody else gives for them, and try to have a nice sentence every here and there, you know, yeah, and those people make a good living and they write at the New Yorker and the Atlantic and places like that. And if I was going to be one of those people, then I would have had like a completely different life than I've had. You know, I can't be one of those. So I need to, if I want to actually do what I'm supposed to be doing, something that's kind of authentic and makes the most use of my skills. And also that I think, you know, I have a kind of responsibility to be doing just because, you know, not that many other people are doing it. I need to continue to take these chances and I need to kind of find a way to not worry so much about what there is to lose now, you know, because when, you know, when things have fallen apart in your life and you don't have much going on, it's not the worst thing in the world if you know, if somebody cancels you, what are you going to, you know, nothing. What, <laughs> yeah. What, yeah. What, what, you're what at the basement really level, happen, right? You're yeah. already
0: at the basement level. So you're like, all right. Yeah. yeah. Like who cares? You know?
1: Yeah. But at this point, you know, life isn't, life isn't such a travesty anymore. And so it's much harder to do this. And I kind of understand a little bit better why these people do have these risk averse writing careers, because if you go to a Harvard or Yale, and then your first job is at the New Yorker at the Atlantic, and then you switch to the other one or whatever, and you go from staff writer to associate editor or whatever, and then you have an essay collection published or whatever, then of course you're going to be like, hey, I don't want to ruin all this, right? So whenever I have a view that deviates from the norm, I'm going to kind of fluff it up a bit and package around it all these other views that other people agree with. And I'm going to Make sure that it doesn't offend anybody in particular. I'm going to put it in a way that uh, people feel they can agree with, even though it actually contradicts the things they themselves have written and things like that. And of course, there are some issues that these people just aren't going to write about. There are some things that they believe that they're just not going to say. And, you know, I, yeah, I talk to these people and a lot of them agree with me and they just say, I'm, you know, I'm not going to express these things, but I'm glad that you are. So my hope is just that there are enough people out there who are glad that I am, that'll be able to continue doing it.
0: It's interesting when that starts to happen. Right. There are certain things, you know, anytime I guest on someone else's podcast, my stomach feels terrible for like days until it comes out, you know, because I also can't keep my mouth shut. That's another feature of who I am as a writer as well. You know, I just, I'm not a risk averse person intellectually. And so it's just, that's just never, you know, I have had to temper some things like you, which I think was ultimately for the better. Right. You know, it made me more reasonable and thoughtful, which is a gain sometimes. Right. But there are times where I'm really shocked that some of the more, like, I would think incendiary things that I've said, like, sort of hit pay dirt. And you hear from a bunch of people that are just like, hey, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like so shocking that, like, (laughs) you know, even if some people get mad, like, no one's like kicking down your door to yell at you. (laughs) And I'm just like, God, why did I say that? Or why did I write that? Like, you know, this is it now. And when that doesn't happen, it's just, it's liberating. And it's also, you start to, it can boost your confidence at the same time as so self-doubt. Yeah. Right. Because you're like, am I going to just start saying things like this just to get the attention or, you know, whatever, you know, you want to keep an eye on yourself.
1: Oh, no, you definitely want to make sure, you know, And Twitter, that's another reason why I like taking breaks from Twitter, because you don't want to get into, I think a lot of people, some smart people and some not so smart people, but, you know, a a lot of people of varying kind of ability levels can get similarly captured by just like what gets likes and retweets, what gets shares, what makes money, but also, you know, there are rewards other than money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I see people sharing and praising an article of mine, it feels, you know, it's just an amazing feeling. That's why I was, you know, I had terrible writer's block until I started writing for magazines. And it was the fact of just seeing people sharing and getting feedback Mm -hmm. on it. That's really what keeps me going, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily a completely internally motivated writer.
0: Very few are very few. Yeah.
1: And so you want to keep getting that. And so you want to keep writing things that people are going to are going to praise you for, but yeah, I found it very unpredictable what I'm going to get praised for, what I'm going to get criticized for, what people are going to hate me for. I, you know, I recently, there's also, you know, like there are people out there who you're not aware of, and they will find you sometimes when you're a writer. I recently had this review of Tom Nichols's book. Tom Nichols is this, like, he was this kind of pro Iraq war guy yeah, yeah, who then wrote this it's thing a, about like
0: it's a very great review. I'll put it in oh, the thank show you. Notes oh for yeah, I appreciate it.
1: I enjoyed it a lot. You know, when I wrote the review. It was just kind of like, I was talking to my editor friend at Tablet about, you know, neither of us really like Tom Nichols. And I said, oh, I'll write a review of this. To me, it was just kind of like an assignment, you know, it's just another, but it turned out that like, there's this, like this group of like 200,000 follower kind of Trump adjacent Twitter accounts who hate Tom Nichols, who've gotten into these (laughs) arguments. And so there are all these, And now I'm mutuals with some of them. I hope we have, you know, I'm happy to get to know them a little bit. um, Yeah, sure. We'll agree about, but yeah, there are all these uh, anti-Tom Nichols, there's like anti-Tom Nichols, pro-Trump ecosystem, many of whom shared the review. And I just hadn't, I hadn't even really thought about them. I just figured it would be kind of shared by my normal, mm-hmm. you know, normal people who, you know, other writers who'd like me. And uh, so that, that really took me by surprise. And uh, the negatives can also take you by surprise. I wrote a piece on this kidney donation story, the bad art friend story in yeah. the New York Times that was a lot of debate. And somebody linked me in the story. I talk about exhibiting hick- hickishness mm-hmm. by not understanding social norms and kind of making these like faux pas in a kind of progressive social culture. And uh, somebody linked me to a forum post where somebody's like, I know Oliver personally in real life. And it's like completely, he's just lying if he calls himself a hick or something. And I was like really taken aback. Like I hadn't even thought about, because obviously I'm not like a, you know, I'm not about to go poach a pheasant or whatever in the forest or what, you know, that's obviously not who I am. So it just really took me aback that people thought I was kind of lying by using this term that was obviously not exactly meant in its literal meaning. And so that was, you know, that's another audience that I had never really thought about, like people who actually have known me in my life, reading my work and seeing if, you know, the way I present myself in the work in my work fits with their understanding of me. And, uh, you know, one incident that you and I were talking about before was this one where I tweeted something about it. you know often when I write something I sort of forget about it right like I kind of mm-hmm. work the idea out and then I'm happy to just let it off into the world and let people think about what it what they will you know I'm
0: on to the next thing like something else is keeping me up at yeah none. exactly you know
1: and I, I need yeah. to figure it
0: out and just sit down and I need to write about it and
1: there are people like I think Rilke in his letters to you know he writes something like this where it's like you know writers have to write they kind of write to get it out this sort of thing you know but it does kind of feel like almost a humoristic you know, Mm -hmm. you have this like thing inside you that it's a compulsion on the page. Yeah. It's kind of compulsive. I think most writers understood this, but you know, a lot of the, the people who hate me and my discipline of philosophy, I got a lot of quote tweets when I tweeted this saying like, you know, Oliver is pretending that he's not, he doesn't actually believe what he writes. That he's not actually anti-woke and you know, that he doesn't actually care about all this stuff and things like that. It wasn't really at all, like what I had been trying to say. And it just really took me aback because to me, it was just like the statement about writing and you know the different ways that people can approach writing different ways to be a writer right like as a writer who is kind of like a pundit who is associated with a certain universe Uh, of views yeah versus a writer who's associated with a certain way of reasoning or a certain style you Mm -hmm. know a certain literary style or something like that i think of myself as being much more in the kind of latter two camps and uh, you know people who know me from getting angry about the influence of social justice and philosophy, took it to be a statement about social justice and philosophy, which I guess kind of is understandable because that's like the one thing that they know about me. So yeah, all these things, what people are going to like, what they're going to hate, it's all very unpredictable. You know, like the Tom Nichols thing, when I've reviewed books by other philosophers, even people, even philosophers who I would expect to agree with them, sometimes there are like personal grudges. And because philosophy is one of these disciplines where just people are always arguing with each other and there's a lot of pettiness. And so i all often get support from somebody who is very much disagrees with my views, but is just like, well, I was glad that you had a takedown of this particular person because I don't get along with them at a personal level. And that always comes as a surprise too. So to me, it's just always been, it's really unpredictable. Who's going to like something? Who's going to hate something? How extreme the reaction is going to be? And I don't know if you know, by and large, I haven't found that, you know, I have editors, right, at these various magazines and online places and stuff like that. I don't know if they can predict it any better than I can.
0: You can't. It's just just the randomness of the experience. I mean, I'm interested in what you said about how one of the things you've done is you've critiqued the way social justice rhetoric has crept into your uh, discipline of
1: philosophy. Yeah.
0: And I was wondering if you could illuminate for listeners like what that looks like since you are within the academy. But yeah. I don't think we've actually had the opportunity to talk to somebody who's like watching it sort of roll out in their professional yeah. and intellectual life the way you are.
1: So there's there's kind of two, well, probably more than two, but I'll focus on two different ways that you see it rolling out Um. And uh, there's probably going to be subways within the ways, but sure, sure. Yeah. I, I kind of want to structure my answer before <laughs> I give it, and I'll note that. Um,
0: Am I talking to can, a philosopher right yeah. now? Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: I'll note that you can be there. You can be kind of in favor of one wall against the other. So one way is just through administrative stuff: what events are organized, what incentives there are to hire people mm-hmm. who work in certain subfields, or who come from certain demographic groups, what demand there are for certain courses, even down to the level of just like what sorts of emails you get from, you know, I got an email from a, dean, a vice president or a vice dean of something here at Notre Dame that said something about like, um, you know, this week, you know, it's the blah, blah, blah week. And we want, you know, all we want all the faculty and grad students to take some time to reflect on what they're doing in the fight for racial justice or something like that. And I saw this and I was like, you know, I already work hard enough for Notre Dame. If I'm, <laughs> if I'm reflecting on the fight for racial justice, I'm going to be doing it on my own time. So yeah. I just, I replied to this email and I just said, don't send me emails like this again. Probably shouldn't have done that. You know, I don't think it had any effect, but if you think about the effect it could have had, it could not possibly have had a good effect. It could no, have no. A bad yeah. effect. So yeah. I shouldn't have done it, but it is something that, you know, especially in the past year or two, I have seen it, I've heard for many more philosophers and people in other disciplines, you say so much more administrative energy is going into this stuff Mm -hmm. so much, so many more trainings, so many more workshops, so many more, how to deal with students when they say this, how to deal with students when they're worried about that. So much more sensitivity and so much more linking to kind of like concrete, you know, we have to talk in class this way because George Floyd was murdered, that sort of thing, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, And so that's the kind of administrative bureaucratic side of things. And there's different viewpoints on why that happens. Some people are true believers Mm -hmm. and some people are doing kind of litigation avoidance, right? Where they don't want to be sued by a student or a faculty member who says there's a hostile environment. And the other side of it is what happens from within the faculty. And for philosophy, there's, okay, I'm going to have at least three subgroups here. One is philosophers talking to non-philosophers. Mm -hmm. Another is political philosophy and another is politics getting into things that aren't political philosophy. So philosophers talking to non-philosophers is actually, I think one of the most, it's kind of under reflected on by philosophers, I think, but most philosophers, and actually this comes under criticism by some some philosophers, but often without much of an argument, just by saying it's bad, it's unfeeling or something like that, but most philosophers have a very abstract, I think it's fair to say, way of looking at certain kinds of questions. They're yeah. very willing to use thought experiments, hypothetical situations, to push the boundaries of our concepts. They're very willing to say, well, even if P is true, it doesn't imply Q or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah,
0: they're kicking the tires, right? Like yeah, exactly. they, You want to verify your thoughts. I mean, this is as it, old as the Socratic dialectic.
1: Exactly. So I think of it as just being kind of following in Socrates' footsteps, right? And so, you know, what would Socrates, not that I'm flattering myself very much today, right? (laughs) But I feel like today, Socrates might go into a philosophy department and say, well, what do you mean by racism? Well, what do you mean by power? You know, Mm -hmm. what do you mean by justice? And some Mm -hmm. of these terms that are, what do you mean by justice is what Socrates said, right? (laughs) Yeah, I was about Um, to say, I mean. (laughs) Yeah. So the other one's not so much, but justice definitely something Socrates said. So, you know, if somebody says, well, we need to have... um, you know, disability justice, Socrates is going to be like, disability, ju- you know, maybe is there really a different kind of justice or blah, blah, blah? You know, mm. he would have all these questions. Yeah,
0: it's just um, justice one thing or many, you know, right. like yeah, that exactly. is in the is Republic. It's, maybe it's said in many
1: ways, right? <laughs> and uh, so, an event that happened recently, my friend Rebecca Tuvel, who you may remember from the Hypatia affair where she argued about transracialism and people within philosophy tried to cancel her for that in 2017 in a very dumb incident, in my opinion, where Everybody came off, everybody who was critical of the piece came off looking like they hadn't even read it. She recently invited Peter Singer to her campus, well, by Zoom, to talk about, he's written on the ethics of the pandemic and whether mandatory vaccinations are worth, you know, basically he's a utilitarian, right? So it's all just accounting, right? So basically- And you can kind of expect what he's
0: going to say, but there's nothing, I mean, I don't like Singer. I don't agree with his framework, but- Yeah, you don't have to be a utilitarian. Yeah. I'm not like, I don't know what's threatening-
1: right so what happened was basically singer has these old views um about disability yeah which basically are like well i'm a utilitarian so if a disabled child would have a life that's full of pain and would also make their parents lives worse then it just seems like everybody loses out by the continued existence of the disabled person right and so you might think that this is just like you know. In philosophy, people say one person's modus ponens is another person's modus tollens, right? So he just says we'll stick with utilitarianism and we'll have this view that maybe infanticide is okay in some situations. Other people would say, Well, it's just obvious that infanticide is never okay. So utilitarianism must be false mm-hmm. because it licenses infanticide. But basically, you know, all these people at the college where my friend teaches got very angry about this incident. And it was reported, this whole dust-up was reported in Chronicle of Higher Ed and Mm -hmm. IHE in a few places, but I don't think it was reported that widely. And they started saying these things like Peter Singer thinks disabled people aren't human, or Peter Singer Singer thinks disabled people are worthless, or he invalidates their existence, or what are some of this mumbo jumbo that people are always saying? Right? I don't know what it means to have a valid or an invalid existence. You know, it's just not very confusing phrase to me. And yeah, so we'll, people, we'll get to confusing phrases here in a minute yeah, yeah. after this, yeah. So so this group of non-philosophers, they didn't understand the philosophical method. They didn't understand the sorts of claims that philosophers are making. And they also just didn't understand how to parse philosophical text well enough to, to even understand the claim that Singer was making very clearly. And so it's very hard talking to non-philosophers. And there are some philosophers who think, well, we need to do more to get respect from non-philosophers. Funny thing is, you know, when I first started studying philosophy, which is now quite a while ago, this was big in like the philo- when philosophy of mind, kind of naturalized philosophy of mind of like the Dan Dennett style mm-hmm. was very popular. It was like the sexiest thing in philosophy and arguing about physicalism versus dualism and functionalism mm-hmm. and whether the brain is a computer. These are mm-hmm. all the sexiest arguments in philosophy, um, maybe around 15 years ago. And so that had a certain, I'm considering writing an article about this, that had a certain kind of philosopher who didn't really want to be doing philosophy. They wanted to be doing like cognitive science. Mm-hmm. psychology, neuroscience, and that sort of thing, right? Now we have another kind of philosopher who's saying we should be doing kind of the psychology of bias and sociology and anthropology instead of doing so much philosophy. So it's these two different kinds of re- reluctant philosophers, but it seems like philosophy is a discipline that's full of people who are always trying to say, I wish we weren't actually doing philosophy. I wish we were doing something else, which is a very weird fact about the discipline. So then you also have, you have people doing political philosophy straight up, which to me is like, sure. If you wanna make an argument within political philosophy that progressivism is good, that social justice is good, you know, then go ahead, You know, sure, why not? Make yeah. the argument, we'll see if it's convincing or not. That's just like what you do in political philosophy. Then the third thing is politics within things other than political philosophy. And that is a lot of what I work on professionally where people argue, okay, here's a metaphysical claim and it has a bad political upshot. And so we need to take politics into metaphysics. Or here's a claim about rationality, but if that were true, then this kind of bad person would be rational. Mm-hmm. So we need a new definition of rational, rationality, right? So like, for example, some people think we need a definition of rationality on which no racist belief could ever be considered rational in any circumstance, which to me seems like You know, ludicrous. You can imagine people with all sorts of different kinds of evidence, right? It seems like a really weird consequence to look
0: for. And it seems weird to worry about the definition in that way rather than trying to explore the consequences of a definition that could incorporate that and what you might find about the limits of rationality or there are subsequent questions you can ask that seem to resolve the conflict that trying to find the perfect definition inspires.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And yeah. And you see the same thing in philosophy of language where, you know, just there's an increasing amount of philosophy of language research that's on variety of things from propaganda to slurs to, I don't even know. I don't know philosophy of language. but And certainly epistemology is what I know best. And you see, you see the growth in this there. And there's where I think the main thing is just like, a lot of the scholarship is bad, but that's true of a lot of trendy scholarship, right? Just because it's, mm. it's trendy, so it gets published, and then it turns out this trend led to a lot of bad research. But I also think there's something about the whole project that I've never really understood the motivation. Like, the motivation for it is not internal in general to metaphysics or to epistemology, right? It's politics kind of coming in and, you know, to use a phrase my opponents might sometimes use, politics kind of comes in and colonizes mm-hmm. these disciplines, right? It says- Oh, you thought you could just do epistemology. Well, no, you can't. You need to pay the piper, right? Mm -hmm. There's a kind of politics tax where you can't do this discipline without thinking about politics. And so, yeah, I think that's in general a bad development. I think that's doing that is a little bit different from thinking about, you know, is it necessarily irrational to believe in conspiracy theories, things like that? Those are just questions in social epistemology that can be interesting. So, there's a wide range of work related to this. It's not clear exactly why this stuff has become so trendy. I think part of it is just trends among the way academics think about themselves. They think about themselves more as academia can be a way of being an activist, which Mm -hmm. to me seems ridiculous. You know, Mm -hmm. if you want to be an activist, you should be an activist because Mm -hmm. academics don't, you know, we don't really change the world. Just empiric, right? Like, It's not as a matter of principle, just empirically, we don't really change the world. People are just kind of going through the motions when they take our classes, trying to get good grades. And we kind of hope that we can trick them into learning something. And then I think there's also pressures from students who come into college already having kind of woke beliefs to be able to take classes that fit with them and kind of are related to them.
0: Right. This is something Um, that's default friend or Catherine D um, who I just interviewed. She talks a lot about this and how the right critique of academia has not appreciated the way in which so many students showed up prefabricated in the woke mold.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, this can come through online through social media. It can come through television. It can just come through kind of, you know, maybe it's just natural. Maybe this is just where Things are going in history. Maybe the history of thought is just going this way.
0: Right. Like a zeitgeist Um, type thing. Maybe
1: it's just a zeitgeisty thing. I definitely, it definitely is something that, at least when I was in college, which now is, you know, it always is getting longer ago. That's the nature of the world, unfortunately. (laughs) But when I was in college, and this is part of why, you know, I wrote this thing in this bad art friend piece about hickishness. You know, I went to an upstate New York small liberal arts college coming from a big public high school. And uh, I was there with, you know, there were a lot of people who had gone to very good, public schools or or private high schools. And it was the people who were very good at being woke when I was in college were just almost always the people with money. There was just like a, a very strong correlation. Those were the people who had learned this kind of woke etiquette, people with money who were always going down to New York to party, who knew famous people. And there were a lot of people like this, you know, at a small liberal arts college in upstate New York.
0: Well, it's like the scene from American psycho, where it's like, hey, cool it with the anti Semitism. Yeah. Or when Patrick Bateman does this whole thing, like, (laughs) we all know that the homeless need to be taken care of. You know, meanwhile, he's like ruthlessly murdering them for fun. We've got
1: bigger problems than Sri Lanka. (laughs) Yeah. Except, uh, you know, Bateman at least kind of knew that he was a psycho. Some of these people don't know that they're psychos. Yeah. That's definitely Um, true. But yeah, sorry. What was I talking about? Yeah. So I think
0: we were talking about how this has colonized your discipline, how we've seen it take shape and sort of- Oh yeah, and we were talking
1: about it starting in high school and maybe there's a demand coming up. Right, and maybe
0: there's a demand and coming up for it. So yeah, I do think people like arrive with these preconceived notions a lot of time, but like what's interesting to me is what seems to be a defining feature of all of this. You know- one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is what happened to the words valid and invalid. You know, it's, I was like, somebody needs to write like an etymology of the last like 10 years of what's yeah, happened have, here. Yeah. But I think that plays into a larger trend that I see diffused among this whole dynamic you laid out or these parts, these subgroups, however we want to think about it. And it is the Mott Bailey machine. hmm where the definitions can always be shifted in a goalposty way to avoid criticism at all. And I've seen that really happen with your critiques of critical race theory, Mm -hmm. right? Because what people often tell you is that, you know, IbraMex Candy is like the real intellectual deal. And what Robin D'Angelo is doing is base and dumb and everyone knows it.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Right. And I think I remember talking to you briefly about this where I said, no, that really just seems to be a deviation between like theory and praxis. Yeah. Whereas like Candy's just like thinking about it and Robin D'Angelo is like running HR
1: seminars oh, <laughs> on how yeah, to yeah, do yeah. it. And the know? same thing with, you know, you know, I think I had a tweet about, you know, something Mark Lamont Hill tweeted, which was like, You know, everybody said, oh, real anti-racism isn't this therapeutic stuff. But then Mark Lamont Hill had this thing that was like, you know, everybody needs to work on themselves and blah, 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 you know, and it's just the same, it's the same thing you would get from a Robin D'Angelo seminar from this supposed expert. There was one more thing that I wanted to say just about the fact of like the demand for courses and the fact that this starts in high school and stuff like that. And that was just that, I don't know if it was intentional, but the show, The Chair that came out recently actually put this thing about demand for academic courses into a really stark perspective.
0: So that's for people who don't know, that's a Netflix show that takes place at, I think, an ailing uh, liberal arts college or something like that. And a woman becomes the chair of it. And it's sort of about the dramas that play out there. Yeah.
1: It's kind of, in a lot of ways, it's kind of inaccurate to academia because, among other things, she's really happy to become the chair. Whereas all any academic worth their salt knows that being shared is like the worst job. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to do it. You're not actually people's boss, you know, but they Mm -hmm. call her the boss and stuff like that. But so there's an old professor who can no longer get students to his class. And then there's a kind of young black female professor who's had the students like do songs. They like write songs about Moby Dick and stuff like that. And at one point she said, you know, what does the whale represent? And somebody yells out capitalism. And then somebody yells out the patriarchy. Somebody yells out, you know, imperialism. Somebody yells out whiteness, right? And so this was supposed to be the thing that the students were really into, which I think might, you know, it might be correct. You certainly see a lot of students who learn to talk this way. But like another thing that the scene might've been trying to show us, I don't know if it was intentional, but like that is really stupid. And (laughs) like a terrible way to teach a course on a great piece of literature yeah, Just by saying, what are the intellectual reflexes that are kind of hip these days that you can just yell out, right? What are some catchphrases and neologisms mm-hmm. that you can yell out to associate with something bad in this story or with an antagonist in the story? So I don't know if it was intentional or not. If it was intentional, it's good. If it was unintentional, it's bad. But it seems clear to me that like, if that's what students want, Then they want something that we should not be giving them, right? Because that is a stupid way to try to teach people. That is not a good way to try to teach people. That is not people are not actually going to be learning anything just by saying here are the things we think are bad, and now we're going to associate them with things in literature. This,
0: yeah, and I'm I'm going to add briefly here to sort of like the dynamic. Maybe this is another group, and it is the way politics and philosophy through critical theory have entered into. What would be the teaching of literature,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? And in a way, it starts to homogenize all of these enterprises into this single task of yeah. rehearsing the neologisms. No, and I agree. The and you see, you see, like I mean, I have friends. I don't really talk to them anymore, but I have friends who were like literature teachers at university, like adjunct, of course. So I'm sure they were getting like just ruthlessly exploited. Right. Um, so I don't want to be too hard on them, but like. We're obviously structuring their curriculum to drive students polemically towards a particular perspective, mm-hmm. right? And like, that was the point of the poetry class they were teaching. Yeah. It seems like poetry, reading and writing was the occasion to enter the funnel of having the right opinions.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that homogenization is such a great term for it because like, It can, it's not good for the world of the mind, for the world of letters. It's not good if literature and philosophy, anthropology, sociology, psychology, it's not good if those are all kind of glomped up into the same like indeterminate political task, right? Right. The funny thing about this is like political science is actually less captured by some of these dynamics, I think, than other fields. Mm-hmm. Right, Like a lot of political scientists are still like doing opinion polling and things like that. Right. And how did, you know, how did people change their views about the gold standard in 1840 or whatever? Mm-hmm. I could be wrong about that. Maybe I have the wrong read on some of these disciplines, but at, like at the very least, it, it's hard for me to see why, why it would be good if people in all these different disciplines are just doing the same kind of weird Not very creative, not very interesting, not very original task of associating bad things with the political causes we don't like and good things with the political causes we do like and reciting the same neologisms about, yeah, like capitalism, whiteness, patriarchy, neoliberalism, and now some of the newer ones about, you know, cis patriarchy or cis ability or whatever, you know, all all these odd things. Well, yeah, I just saw some. Maybe it's who... good if, maybe it's good if like two or three
0: people do that in the world, right? Right, right. But maybe not entire. Maybe, departments, maybe not it's and just entire.
1: Like, not everybody needs to do the same things. And it's not that I'm necessary. Like, I do think of myself as in some ways a general. I don't think the extreme levels of specialization that we had in the academy for a while were good. Uh, and I guess we still have.
0: But we can't just evacuate standards but, to create. Yeah, everything. like this
1: way of being a generalist. Is Mm -hmm. not it's not really very general, right? It's not. It ends up actually being
0: very specific, and yeah, it's very
1: specific, just in in a new way. It's just that a lot of people seem to do the same very specific thing. Oh, I saw some philosophy
0: professor the other day. tweet something like, you know, my favorite part of teaching ethics every year is when the students slowly realize that Plato was a cop. Yeah. See, to me, that's like it's like a bad joke. It's like and I was something... like, and I was like, I get that you're just do, like doing a tweet, but I also like am not an idiot. And yeah, like, hopefully you I'm know, not
1: being mean to somebody I like and saying that. This is what I was saying before about me worrying about my relationships now.
0: No, but to I, me, that yeah. But to, I was just like, you do mean that to some degree, right? Like even if yeah, that's like no. an over uh, a yeah. hyperbolic expression, I'm like, that's a totally unhelpful way
1: to take yeah, a look if, at if somebody's this world. actually. Yeah, I I don't. To me, it's like, what is even the point of, you know, if what philosophy gets people to do is to say, Plato says some things that people I don't like in modern day politics also say, and -hmm. therefore I don't like Plato. Where has the philosophy been done? Like, I mean, what what intellectually has been accomplished? uh, Also, you've
0: really just like confirmed a lot of what seemed to be Plato's deepest suspicions about other people's ability to engage in philosophy. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if this is what actual philosophers are doing, then yes, we should have just one philosopher king.
0: Yeah, so, but I mean, so part of that to me is also the, the Mott Bailey machine, right? Because this is how this behavior protects itself in the public discursive realm, in my mind where it's like no actually real critical race theory has never been tried that's the sort of argument and i guess i'm just curious like do you also see that dynamic like within the academy like when you're talking with your peers when you're even talking with your students is this type of like weird i would say disingenuous like slipperiness now entering into the discipline at all or
1: Yeah. You know, one great thing about analytic philosophy, and this is true even of some of the people who I most harshly criticize, built into analytic philosophy are norms about clarity, (laughs) stating your position, defining your terms, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And although not everybody adheres to it, and some people who are very popular these days don't adhere to it, in general... These norms, people still understand why we have these norms, and uh, yeah, people still understand why we have these norms, and even y- y- yeah, it's it's true on the anti-woke and the woke side that people usually try to be respectful uh, of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you do sometimes see people you see these meta conversations where people say things like, "Oh, the norms of clarity and um here it comes, you know, <laughs> yeah, respectable argumentation. Is actually Uh, white
0: supremacist. Yeah. It's
1: like, that's like politically blah, blah, blah. And I don't, you know, that's just like, to me, it's just like, what would the kids say? They would say it's like telling on yourself, right? If you're saying Mm -hmm. it hurts my political goals that you're trying to make me clear, make me be clear in my writing. I'm like, well, that's just telling on yourself that you don't think you can be, you don't think that you can state your political views in a clear and compelling way. Yeah, um, you or, have to resort to kind of trickery to do it,
0: right? Exactly. I mean, that should—if we want to say everything is politics, we might even say that it has a politics of its own that is intensely cynical, right? Or something. I mean, that is, I think, one of the abiding difficulties we're endi- entering into because we have such a textual society now, right? You know, the incredible proliferation of discursive means. Right. This is really the Habermasian hellscape
1: mm-hmm. that yeah. we've
0: entered into. What do you see could be a potential role for philosophers, analytic or not? Because I mean, I just want to add something in here and you can respond to this and tell me I'm, I'm wrong or whatever. I'm suspicious of the, or not suspicious, I have misgivings about the idea that like simply providing clarity is the thing that can happen here. Right. I think that's important, but I wonder if there are other things. I mean, that should obviously be a principle, but you know what I mean? Like people are always just like, oh, well, the philosopher will just step in and clear this up. Yeah, like I, I, see, think that there's- I definitely see some like people who are big in philosophy, Twitter, like do that. And I'm like, well, what you've done is you've illuminated one of your assumptions. Right. I don't know if you've like clarified this issue.
1: Yeah. So th- th- yeah, th- there's a few things going on there. One is like, so there's always a struggle, you know, and I've, this is another way in which I've tamed myself you know, I used to be, I think, much more critical of other philosophers doing public writing. But now that I've tried to do my own public writing, like, yeah, really, if changes. You get it. edited, your writing gets changed by people who want it to be readable, right? You're not going to be able to say you can't write an article for any public outlet that starts by saying here, I'm going to define five terms. And now I'm going to give arguments in premise, conclusion mm-hmm. form. Nobody's going to read that it's going to feel like work to them. And so you have to find these ways to make intellectual work simultaneously entertaining, and that makes it harder to add clarity, right? That inhibits your clarity. Some people also want their philosophical work to be politically effective. As we were saying, that probably inhibits clarity. You want to have a wide readership, that inhibits clarity. You know, the idea of the philosopher coming in and clearing things up, we kind of think that like, okay, if I came in and cleared things up, it doesn't matter if anybody read the paper, right? We're used to nobody reading our papers. Mm -hmm. But now with public philosophy, we're we're in this world where it's like, okay, I could have a paper That gets five citations, or I could write an article that gets 50,000 readers, right? And the paper and the article are gonna look very different Mm -hmm. and they're gonna, they have different incentives behind them. So I think that's, you know, there's a trade off. And I try to be understanding of philosophers who I know who can do better in terms of the norm of philosophy when they're doing their public writing, but maybe I think, you know, are, I guess, understandably trying to reach more people. For, for whatever reason, right? I also agree that clarity is often not enough, right? Because at the end of the day, like I was saying about infanticide and utilitarianism, right? At the end of the day, you can clear up, you can say the argument is that if A is true and B is true, then C must be true, right?
0: Right, combination four.
1: Yeah, then, well, then the person who thinks C is false can just say, well, I got to figure out which one of A and B is false because I already know that C is false, right? Mm-hmm. So people intellectually people always have choices to make about what to keep and what to throw away. So I'm not always a huge believer in a a lot of the time I kind of at the end of the day say, well, as long as you understood and accepted the argument, I don't care if you believe the conclusion or instead if you throw away some of the premises, right? And that's not an attitude that's necessarily going to satisfy people who are hoping that public philosophy can help us return to a shared understanding of what's going on in the world, or a less polarized, you know. Yeah, basically a clearinghouse for faction. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not sure that I yet have a vision of public philosophy where it can do much more than help people make individual choices about what to believe. Those choices may be diametrically to choice opposed to people, to choices that other people make, even on the same information, right? Even on the mm-hmm. same philosophical understanding. Now, one example of this that I'm hoping to write about soon is, I don't, and again, like as a philosopher, this is just like a hypothesis. I don't know about the sociology of it. I don't know about the political science of it. But here's one way that people might be convinced by the same argument, but come up with very different conclusions based on it. So some people take an argument that says like, if men and women were equal in, if men and women like had the same psychology, let's say. Mm -hmm then, sorry, if men and women were socially equal and men and women had the same psychology, then there would be as many female grandmasters in chess as there were Mm -hmm. male grandmasters or something like that, right? Now, you can accept this argument and some people will take it to mean men and women are not socially equal and other people will take it to mean that men and women have different psychology, right? So the same argument, because some people can take the modus ponens and some people can take the modus tollens, The same argument, even if two people are convinced that the same argument is a good argument, it can lead people to very different conclusions. Another example of this, Jamel Bowie got very mad at me when I tweeted this out a few years ago, but he said something about like, you know, right-wingers always pretend... That America, you know, has always been equal, or something, you know, something like that, or that America wasn't founded on uh, white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, there are right wingers who think America was founded on white supremacy, like uh, Richard Spencer thinks America was founded on white supremacy, right? <laughs> yeah, that's just and, true. Uh, and Bowie took me to be saying, took me to be saying by this something like the 1619 project is a white supremacist project, or something like that, which would be a completely ludicrous assertion, right? Yeah. No, why would anybody think I believe that? All that I was trying to say was like the same empirical premise mm-hmm. can lead to very different normative conclusions if you add in very different normative backdrops, right? The U.S. has always been a white supremacist. If you're very progressive can mean we need to reckon with it and blah, blah, blah. And if you're a white supremacist can mean, you know, we need to return to the glory days or something like right. that. And so my whole point in saying this meant to be like convincing somebody of the history is not enough. Right. Public historians have a really weird role in all of this. You know, you know, the historian here, meme, right. Somebody says historian here and then they say a bunch of things that are Mm -hmm. not history. Right. A bunch of, you know, how politics should be done or something like that. But the historian here, it's not going to unless you pair it with with various kinds of normative assumptions, it's not going to generate any political conclusion. And so I think one thing philosophers should do, and this is something I've tried to do, right. We can be more critical of the way people in other disciplines who are doing public writing kind of fail to understand exactly the nature of the arguments they're making and what they might prove or fail to prove and what assumptions people might reject or might keep. But again, at the end of the day, you hit bedrock, right? At the end of the day, somebody can just say, well, no, this is my core assumption and there's nothing you can do to shake it. And it turns out there's a lot of problems in philosophy that have to do with the fact that you have to get down to a core assumption somewhere. And so if different people are going to choose different core assumptions, then- Maybe there's no, maybe there's not going to be any shared understanding at the end of the day. So it's not clear to me that philosophy can, unfortunately, can help with the present situation because it's not clear that we can get around the kind of philosophical problems about people being able to choose different starting points or just empirically people having different starting points, right? Mm-hmm. People being raised in different cultures, being raised in different environments, or maybe being kind of cognitively disposed through brain structure to have different beliefs about right and wrong or different expectations of other people and things like that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. I think we will end it there. Oliver, this was a delight. I'm really glad I finally got the opportunity to sit down and talk with you. I hope we can do it again.
1: Oh, yeah. This was a lot of fun. I would love to do it again. It was really great talking to you.
0: Great. I'm glad you feel that way. All right, guys. Stay safe out there, and we'll catch you next week.